Hello and welcome to another episode of the Churchology Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holmes, and today on the show, we are excited to have three guests on our show today. Uh, Today we have Hannah Kate Williams on the show. Hannah Kate is a survivor of sexual abuse and a previous guest on the Churchology Podcast. She was actually a guest on episode 10 of our podcast. We will link to that episode in the show notes. Um, It's honestly our most popular episode that we've ever done. And she was just a phenomenal guest. And this entire conversation was her idea. And she approached me on Twitter and I just thought this was a great idea. So Hannah Kay is with us today, along with Griffin Gulledge. Griffin is the pastor of Madison Baptist Church in Madison, Georgia, and Grant Gaines. Grant is a pastor of Bel Air Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And what we do in this conversation is we recap what happened at the Southern Baptist Convention in Nashville that just took place a couple of weeks ago, earlier in the summer, depending on when you listen to this. And we get some great perspectives, some great interaction about what happened at the Southern Baptist Convention regarding sexual abuse, how they will respond, the future of the Southern Baptist Convention, and the the way they handle um, cases of sexual abuse. Grant actually wrote and presented the motion, along with another pastor, the motion to have an independent investigation of the executive committee. He will go into a lot of detail in this conversation. One of the things about this episode is this episode, obviously, with three guests, um, it went longer than a normal episode and this conversation is a conversation that we need to have this conversation is something that i encourage you to listen to share it with others i'd love to hear your response um and because of the length what i'm actually doing with this episode is splitting it into two episodes and so you'll get the first part today and the second part will release tomorrow Um, both of them together last about an hour and a half and so just uh for the sake of listeners, however you listen to podcasts, we're splitting this episode up into two for the audio version. The video version will be the, <clears throat> the entire interview. Uh, will come up on our YouTube, Facebook channel. All the info for that is in our show notes. So if you don't follow our YouTube channel, you don't follow us on social media, on Facebook, check it out. The full-length video will be there. The audio version, splitting it up into two parts. So let's get into part one with all of our guests today on the Churchology Podcast. All right, well, today on the show, we normally have one guest, but today we have the privilege of three guests who are coming on today on the Churchology Podcast, and we're excited because today we're going to Uh, recap the events of the Southern Baptist Convention that happened just a couple of weeks ago and also look forward for what it could mean in the future. And so I am going to let everybody introduce themselves and we'll start with Hannah Kate. Now, Hannah Kate, if people have been listening to the podcast for a while, you are the very first ever repeat guest on the Churchology podcast. And so uh, uh, I wish there was a prize. I wish there was something that was in the mail to you to honor this occasion and uh, we'll just pretend that it is. So Hannah Kate, go ahead and uh, introduce yourself to everybody that's watching and listening if you don't care to. My name is Hannah Kate. I am a student at the University of Kentucky here in Lexington. Um, 
I am a survivor of sexual abuse um, within the SBC. And so a lot of what I put out on social media tends to relate to that issue. But um, I also just enjoy life with my cat. That's me. Grant, go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience. Okay, I'm Grant Gaines. I'm a pastor in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. Um, been here for a couple of years. Before that, pastored in Jackson, Tennessee, in West Tennessee for eight years. I'm married to my wife, Melissa, and we've got five children and a dog. There you go. And Griffin, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Griffin Gulledge. I'm pastor of Madison Baptist Church in Madison, Georgia. I've been here about five months now, and I went married to Rachel. Um, we met when I was at Beeson Divinity School, and uh, we just welcomed our first child, Rosemary, into the world. Uh, she's still in the hospital now, but she's doing great, and um, yeah, I'm excited to uh, be part of this conversation. Excellent, excellent. And this conversation, uh, just to give credit to where credit is due, this was Hannah Kate's idea. So she uh, sent me something on Twitter, and I just thought it was an awesome idea, and uh, everybody willing to jump onto the podcast to to really talk about what happened at the SBC in terms of um, steps that were taken to move forward um, for survivors of sexual abuse. And so, so Grant, let's start with you. You know, people that are watching, listening, uh, a lot of them are out of the SBC, or maybe they're in and just, you know, their familiarity with how the convention works and what, what may have happened. They're not really familiar with it. Can you just uh, talk to us, for everybody that's watching, watching, listening, fill us in on what made this year's convention so significant for the issue of sexual abuse in the SBC? Sure. Well, um, you know, I think going into this SBC, a lot of people had a lot of issues on their minds, but I think, and maybe, you know, Griffin, you might agree or disagree. I think in just a few weeks leading right up to the start of the SBC, um, the letters that became public from Russell Moore turned the conversation um, and made the issue of sexual abuse the number one focus of the convention that year. Now, obviously, that was not when this issue became an issue. Um you know, Hannah Kate and other brave SBC survivors have been talking about this for a long, long time. Um, and it's really to our shame that it took something like Russell Moore's letters to make it a more widespread concern. But that's the way it happened. And uh, and really, it, it's because of voices like Hannah Kate's who have been speaking to this issue for years. And then finally, just in God's timing, I think, brought it to our attention and so that i think it became the dominant theme and the thing that everybody said okay this is something we got to deal with i think leading up to it we all thought we were going to be simply talking about crt and um and then you know a couple of other a couple of other issues um but uh, i'm glad you know i think this was the issue that we needed to address and so those letters came out um and then I can, I can go into some of the details about our, our motion and things like that and the different dynamics that were at play. But uh, that's what I think made this issue to come to the forefront. Yeah. And so, Hannah Kate, with, with everything that Grant just set up, I would love to hear what, what was your kind of mindset going into the SBC uh, and then 
were those letters that were released, did that change your mindset? Did you, did you see, like, like Grant said, did you see something kind of shift in the conversation as well when those letters were released? I did. So about a month before the letters were released, I hit kind of a rock bottom in um, my walk with God, my thoughts on the church, my hopes for the church. Um, If you remember our last conversation, Mm -hmm. you know, I had a lot of high expectations and things that I really really believed um, God would do before those letters were leaked. I just was at a place where I thought there's one's going to listen and nothing's going to change. I I was just over it and I was devastated. And then (laughs) when those letters came out, And people started paying attention and people started listening and people started talking about our stories. I thought, this is God saying, I'm not done yet with the broken. And um, it, it gave me hope because I would not have gone to the Southern Baptist Convention with the mindset I had a month before mm, wow. those letters. Yeah, Griffin, can you just tell our audience, you know, for everybody watching, um, what were those letters? And speak for yourself there. Why do you why do you personally think those letters were really significant to what happened? Well, um, the letters we're talking about is a series of, of leaked letters uh, and then a whistleblower account uh, that came out of the ERLC. Um, mm-hmm. The ERLC has been probably the most vocal, definitely the most vocal institutional advocate for abuse reform in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, And it's been obvious that they've come up against a few brick walls here and there. And, uh, but the, the question publicly has been sort of why, why is this so difficult to address? Why, why do we seem to not be getting this right? Why are abuse survivors not happy with actions we're taking? Why do they still feel like they're being ignored? And what we saw in these leaked letters, which were um, really a leaked accounting from Russell Moore, written to Southern Memphis Convention President J.D. Greer, of the ways in which internal mechanisms and systems and people within the SBC have been resisting reform um, fighting back and maligning those who have called for reform and prioritizing the so-called base of the SBC, whatever that is, over um, over the testimony of witness of victims and, and other whistleblowers. And so they really drew attention to, hey, there is still a significant resistance to reform and accountability. And, that, and that's the key, not just token reforms, uh, yeah, of course, we're not going to allow churches who just hire a child molester as pastor. That, that's great. With no mechanism for enforcement, no mechanism for accountability. Um, and so what you see in these letters is where that resistance is coming from. And then uh, as the claim is made that these letters are, are somehow not truthful or misrepresenting the situation, 
uh, Philip Bethencourt, formerly the executive vice president of the ERLC, releases recordings. Uh, now they are, I think it's important to say they are edited, selective recordings, but really they, they speak for themselves. They are verbatim saying some of the things that these letters point to um, in the sense of seeing abuse reform and accountability as sort of an us versus them. Hey, we need to protect ourselves here. Um, when in reality, you know, to quote Russell Moore, we need to not do any more stupid stuff. Uh, and uh, those letters shown the light to Southern Baptists who had maybe mistakenly convinced themselves, oh, well, didn't we vote on that last convention? Didn't we have a resolution about that? Didn't we start a standing credentials committee? It showed them hey, this is continuing. It is a problem. We have not gone far enough and this conversation is not over. Yeah, yeah. You know, something that, that uh, really, that I would love to ask um, for Grant and Griffin, uh, you two as pastors, uh, can you just speak to, we'll just go back to Griffin, uh, but this is for both of you. I would love to hear why is this uh, an issue that you really want to stand for and speak up again, uh, speak up about, um, other than the fact that it is the right thing to do. It is what every pastor should be doing. Uh, we can have a conversation about that. Uh, but, but you two, uh, I mean, here you are and, and Grant, we're going to get into a, in, a, in, a, in just a second about the motion that you made at the SBC. I would love to hear what what is it specifically for both of you that said this. I'm gonna I'm gonna speak up about this. I'm, this is gonna be an issue that I that I give a lot of work work uh, towards. Griffin, what what is that for you? Some people read accounts like we've heard of sexual abuse, and they say this could be your mother, this could be your daughter, this could be your relative or loved one. Uh, for me, it's not a could be; it's an is. Mm. Um, there are rape victims in my family. There are sexual abuse victims in my family, my loved ones who've been molested, my loved ones who've been abused, whose abusers have not faced accountability. And the Houston Chronicle wrote an article about sexual abusers in churches. And one of the youth ministers who was molesting kids molested a friend of mine from college. And I had no idea. He reached out to me after I shared the article. Yeah. It is the right thing to do. Yeah. But we would not stand for it. We wouldn't tolerate it if we didn't speak up. And, and you know, there is a narrative out there that somehow um, those of us who are speaking up would be stopped if more Southern Baptists were paying attention and cared about their autonomy and whatever. When I came back to my church, I did a Southern Baptist convention report where I shared what was going on and they were furious that these things have been covered up, that we have not done more. I think sometimes people get so wrapped up in Southern Baptist Convention politics that they forget that we are the Roman Catholic Church of the 2020s. We are the scandal. We're the story that's scandalizing the world. We're the shame that's being brought upon the name of Jesus Christ because we have turned, turned a blind eye to people in their greatest time of need. Read the parable of the Good Samaritan. We are the Pharisees crossing the street. And then in the cases of us institutionally bringing further harm to victims, we're not just like the people who cross the street and ignore harm that's done. Sometimes we've been the people who beat them up in the first place and throw mm -hmm. them in the ditch. And I, I think my church 
is not going to stand for it. And I'm not going to stand for it. It is the right thing to do. And if we're going to have any credibility to our Christian witness about a God who does justice on the cross and who gives justice to the oppressed and who will take pain and suffering out of this world, we can't pretend not to care or like we've got better things going on when it is happening in our midst. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Grant, same question to you. All of those reasons. I mean, do justice. Yeah. Love kindness, walk humbly with your God. And there's no greater form of injustice than vulnerable people to being taken advantage of. And then to know how prevalent it is. I think that's what the Houston Chronicle article showed was just how prevalent it is in the SBC and in churches like ours. And and then to know, you know, the, the stat that's often thrown around, which is one in four women and one in six men or, you know, before the age of 18. Um, and so it, it's happening and we've got to deal with it. My church responded the same way. You know, I came back, I think everybody comes back from the convention, not knowing what to expect from their church members the next Sunday. And especially if you've been in, at all involved in what, in what's happened in the convention, we, I came back and everybody in our church was thrilled that we're finally starting to take this seriously in our convention. And I think that was reflected in the room in the convention too, you know, the overwhelming support for this. And so I just think it's time, you know, it's past time, but, but you go, now's the time. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about what it was like there in the room here in just a minute, but Grant, tell, uh, tell us. So Grant, um, you made the motion, correct? Yes, but Ronnie Parrott and I, all right, Ronnie, Ronnie Parrott is a pastor in North Carolina at Christ Community Church. And right after Russell Moore's first letter came out, uh, we started communicating and we said, hey, the executive committee has got some explaining to do, you know, because they're explicitly named in these letters as, as being resistant to reform, as in some cases, you know, intimidating um, survivors as dismissing cases from survivors and as not taking this seriously. And so when, when their chairman, uh, when, when that committee is mentioned, our thought was they need to, they've got some explaining to do. <laughs> and then the question is, well, how do you get them to do any explaining? How do you hold the executive committee responsible? And I think that the beautiful thing about you know, a congregationalist type of polity that not only that happens in our churches, but that happens at the convention level is any messenger to the convention has level of authority and the opportunity to do just that. And so our thought was, let's just make a motion from the floor. I think this would have overwhelming support from any messenger that has a heart and that has any desire to see truth come to light. And so that was the that was the rationale behind that. Now I'll tell you this: our hope from the beginning was that the executive committee itself would get out ahead of this, and would call for all of this themselves, and would want to get this right themselves. But we heard crickets for days after these letters came out, and not until public pressure was put on them did they start kind of backpedaling and, and then, um, you know, trying to 
trying to kind of uh, actually do something about it. But so that's how that's how it all kind of started. And specifically, what was the motion? Okay, so after after the the second letter then came out, so finally they after about a week, I think it was, they they the executive committee finally said, well, we we will we'll do an investigation. So they uh, entered into a contract with Guidepost, which is a reputable you know investment firm that specializes in abuse. And uh, the problem though that we saw with that was, you know, the executive committee was still kind of in the reins in terms of setting the terms for this investigation they didn't put anything in their announcement about the investigation about how public the, the the findings would be in the report and all of those things about the scope of the investigation nothing in there about attorney client privilege i mean so basically um and what what we were hearing a lot from survivors as well was listen this the way that they have worded this uh, the investigation that they have set up so far means nothing. They won't do anything unless the terms of this investigation are really specific, unless the findings are made public, unless um, unless Guidepost has access to all the information they need, which would necessitate some waiving of privilege. Unless all those things are in place, these types of investigations really aren't thorough anyways, and so they're useless. And so that was our thinking behind it as well. So our motion was to make it uh, to form a task force that would be independent of the executive committee that would be appointed by the newly elected president, which wound up being uh, wound up being Ed Litton. And then that task force, which was to be made up of some members of SBC churches, it's also open to being uh, for people who are just experts in the field uh, to be on it as well. That task force would then be the ones that actually entered into a contract with whatever firm they want to enter into a contract with. They would be the ones setting the terms of the investigation, setting the scope of the investigation, giving progress reports and being the liaison and the, and the uh, middleman, so to speak, between the firm and the executive committee. And so our thought was, you know, if you, if we really want this investigation to be thorough, if we want to be neutral, if we want it to be independent, then the executive committee can't be invest, you know, investigating itself. It can't be setting the terms of the agreement itself. Yeah. It can't be reporting the findings itself. They're the ones under investigation, so they can't be in charge of the investigation. So uh, I think just desire to make it neutral and objective, and I think that was the only way to do it. They weren't evidently willing to do that themselves, and so we went to the floor and asked that that be done. Um, and the messengers responded overwhelmingly. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Hannah Kate, when that happened, when the messengers responded the way that they did, what, what was that like? What was that moment like? It was very surprising. Um, I like, I kept asking Grant the whole convention, like, is this going to work? Is this going to work? Are they going to do the right thing? And he just had this confidence that everything was going to work out. Um, I will say the day before the actual meeting, when the motion was brought, it was a Monday and, um, I and a group of survivors of sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention had issued 
a joint statement the week before pretty much summarizing uh, what we were asking between both um, Grant and Ronnie's motion and then Todd Benkirk's motion, uh, specific changes that we thought we needed for transparency in the SBC to move forward. And um, so all day Monday, I passed out copies of those and the conversations a lot of times would start off like defensive like people were like why are we talking about this this isn't that big of a deal this is a liberal agenda but what was really incredible to see was just how the holy spirit works through kindness and through gentleness and through the things he's called us to and through patience and how he works um, on our hearts individually and on the hearts of those listening to us. So the start of the conversation might be rough, but a majority of them ended up um, on a good note where people were like, oh, I get it now. Oh, I see the face with the name oh, now I understand how prevalent it was. And I mean, I talked to thousands of people <laughs> that day. And I mean, the majority was just this um, seeing God transform them from being blind to the sin in the convention to seeing it and being ready to reckon with it. And I think that was really powerful for me to see. And then when the motion was actually made on Tuesday, you know, there was a lot of fear, um, a lot of anxiety. What if this doesn't go through? What if this is the last conversation the SBC ever has about sexual abuse and we're back at square one? Um, but to hear the words that Grant chose and that he chose with such intention um, to see a pastor stand up for so many when those he's standing up for have been most harmed by pastors, to see that redemptive moment and then to follow it with Wednesday and and see just, there were so many different things that God did, so many small things that all came together. And you really saw the significance of each member of the body of Christ coming together when they reckon with the sin, that um, their collective sin, and when they truly want to turn away from it. And then when those ballads were raised, I was standing next to two of um, my favorite people, there were other survivors, and I mean, we just grabbed each other, and we just sobbed, because we couldn't believe that God truly was as faithful to not leave the church in sin as he was on Wednesday, so it was a really powerful, I'll never forget it. Hmm. Wow, wow. So let's let's dig in uh, into this for a little bit. So Griffin, let me go to you. Um, I know that there are people who are watching this and listening to this and they're, they're, they're hearing this and it, you know, they're leaned in, but the question in their mind is what is the executive committee? And so can you, uh, can you just explain to our non SBC listeners, 
and a lot of our SBC listeners as well. Um, what is the executive committee? Well, in the it's in the book of Hebrew. No, I, it's not. It's not in the Bible. It's not a, a church um, office. You know, the executive committee is a, an administrative committee that has some ad interim fiduciary responsibility in the Southern Baptist Convention. And in general, in general, if you ask people, name five people on the executive committee, they would come up goose egg on you most of the time. It is supposed to be sort of the invisible hand of the Southern Baptist Convention that they promote cooperative program giving, that they uh, promote our entities. And when the convention is not in meeting together, so the Southern Baptist Convention only technically exists the two days a year that it's meeting. When it's not meeting, what the executive committee does is it does the things that are specifically not enumerated for the gathered convention to do, it does those things in their place throughout the year. What are those things? They receive and distribute cooperative program dollars. They promote the cooperative program. They promote cooperation among our churches. And they have representatives from every state. And they make sure that our entities, you know, they hear reports from our entities throughout the year and make sure that they are um, upholding our constitution and bylaws and fulfilling their ministry assignment. It's not a powerful organization. Typically, they have a few other responsibilities like Baptist Press, um, which is not an independent press agency. Uh, Baptist Press does a great job at reporting on what's going on in the SBC, but they are not an independent journalistic enterprise. They don't have investigative reporting. It is a a, li a little more than a PR firm because uh, there is a, a PR wing of the executive committee. Um, but the executive committee has a very important role in the life of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is to make sure that we're fulfilling our ministry assignments, promote our cooperative tasks together and distribute money. What, what has happened at the executive committee that is so such a problem is that people have used this committee to aggregate power to themselves and exercise undue influence in our convention. And so you see, for example, um, you see, for example, um, groups who begin to pull in the ERLC and strong arm them into not speaking on certain things under the guise of, well, maybe it'll hurt cooperative program giving. You know, their ministry assignment to endorse or to enhance cooperative program giving is not, it's a job, it's not a threat. Um, they're, they're supposed to be there um, to su support the work of the convention, but they have had a chairman who um, under executive session outside of a, a place where he could be questioned, pulls together a task force to investigate the ERLC and they're investigating the ERC for dividing the convention. But then they produce a report, which is not voted on by the EC, not adopted, uh, not even verified with facts that makes ridiculous claims, like that George Soros is funneling money to the ERLC. You know, look, George Soros funneling money to the evangelical organization. I I've been accused of that. And look, if, if George is handing out checks, I'm still waiting on my first one. And I think Russell Moore is too. And what you, what you have seen at 
at best out of the executive committee is negligence and at worst it is harm. You know, a lot of people don't know that an abuse victim took the executive committee into a lawsuit last year, which they then settled outside of court for a huge sum of money because they libeled her in Baptist press and what they did and, and admitted to in the course of that was that an article was written that executive committee leaders then amended and insisted on changing to misrepresent this woman first written as an abuse victim, but published as a harlot, as an adulteress. Um, even though what was committed against her was a violent act of sexual abuse repeatedly over the course of a decade. That was the executive committee's action. Of course, they didn't report those workings to the Southern Baptist Convention. No questions were ever asked. It was all done under the guise of their private and small meetings. Also, executive committee has repeatedly had abuse victims come to them and tell them that pastors are sexually abusing women, children, young boys, and moving from church to church without any accountability. And the, again, at best, the executive committee has said, sorry, there's nothing we can do. There, we can't help local church autonomy. But local church autonomy has become a mantra, sort of like sort of like Cain saying to God in the garden, you know, or outside, right outside the garden, am I my brother's keeper? It's just them saying, oh, there's, we can't help, even though, even though there are many ways that they could assist in keeping track of abusers and making sure that churches who hire sexual abusers are not able to continue in good fellowship with our convention. So at best, they were negligent. At worst, well, we now have private correspondence of them insulting advocates like Krista Brown, calling these women and men divisive, attacking them as somehow agents of Satan and doing so alongside other entity heads like Paige Patterson. And then we find out that when someone has insulted or attacked an abuse victim like Paige Patterson, you have the executive vice president of the executive committee, Augie Bodo, who in court says that he is actively working alongside or is, is, is credibly verified to have actively worked alongside this group to funnel money away from one of our entities into an organization led by Paige Patterson. The executive committee is supposed to be a quiet, invisible, small group of people that supports our cooperative work and distributes money. And it has become a place that people aggregate power to themselves and try to act like bishops over the SBC and have wielded that power, not for the good of abuse victims, but for themselves and, uh, and to silence and malign those victims. And it really is a shame because there are countless good and godly men and women who have been on the executive committee and served faithfully. It is not the majority of them who have done this, but the people who could do it have done it. And it has caused us to be in the situation that we're in now. Wow. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, so, so I guess my question is uh, for Grant. Um, so Grant, having made the motion, motion passes in light of everything that Griffin just told us about the executive committee. What, uh, I guess, could happen as a result of this independent investigation uh, to the SBC? What, 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 are, what are, I guess, maybe goals that you have in your mind? Or what could happen to the executive committee um, as a result of this independent investigation? 
I think that's yet to be seen. I mean, I think the main thing that I hope happens yeah. is that the stories that survivors have been telling will be heard mm-hmm. by the convention. <laughs> that's that's the main. I think that's the main win. I don't. I'm sure there could be disciplinary action that comes. I, I'm sure there's a lot of different course corrections and things, but the main purpose behind our motion is to go back and make things right where we have wronged survivors when they've spoken up. It's hard enough for them to speak up. Um, when, when we, when we then don't listen to them or shut them down after they've spoken up and mustered the courage to do that, um, that that's horrible. And so this is to go back and to shine a light, bring it into the light, whatever's in the darkness, we need to bring it to the light. We need to know where we have failed, even if it's, if it's a lot of failure, if it's horrible failure, we need to look at, look that failure right in the eye. So we know what we've done so that we never do it again. That, that to me is the, the main purpose of this. Now, Todd Benkert, we can talk about this if you want, also got another motion passed referred to the RLC and an action will be taken there. And he's going to be looking at the present state of, of kind of what's happening, the patterns of abuse in churches right now from test testimonies from survivors and others um, so that we can know how to move into the future. But our motion was about dealing with the wrongs we've done in the past, making sure justice is done there, making sure the survivors are heard, making sure anything that was done in the cover of darkness is brought into the light because we can't move forward if it means leaving survivors behind. Mm. And so that's, that's what, that's what our motion is meant to do. Yeah. And Mark, if I could, if I could just add, I think something that would bring some clarity to what is going on here. Before Grant made his motion to bring this to the floor of the convention, the same effort was made the morning of the convention in the executive committee's plenary session. I was sitting in the room when it happened Jared Wellman asked them to take this step of accountability. They didn't, they voted it down to even discuss it. They weren't even willing to discuss it. And one of the men on the executive committee said, you know, this is shameful and harmful to our convention. We're not investigating our churches. Let's be clear. Nothing here is being done to investigate our churches our churches will still retain full autonomy. The Southern Baptist Convention is not a denomination that has the power to end, to investigate local churches, but what we can do is have a real commitment with some teeth to it to not cooperate with churches that tolerate and hire abusers and enable abusers. And then secondly, the idea that we're investigating churches is such a joke because what we're really doing is investigating ourselves There are institutional failures in handling abuse at Southeastern Seminary, Southwestern Seminary, ironically under the same president both times, at uh, one of the abusers was a professor at Southern Seminary. There has been an institutional failure in handling abuse at the International Mission Board. There has been a, a church planner and pastor who was just arrested on sexual abuse charges who is supported by the North American Mission Board last month. Now, there's no evidence that they enabled him or knew anything or empowered any of that or covered anything up, but this is a problem. This is a widespread problem, and when the Baptist press is losing lawsuits for libeling an abuse victim, 
we're not we're not needing to investigate all the local churches we need to investigate the institutions and ask ourselves are we doing the right thing and if you ask any pastor they'll tell you my counseling classes in seminary weren't enough i'm not an expert on this i didn't learn about this i'm not equipped to handle this and for a long time we have been handling it without the skills the ability the knowledge the equipping and we have been mishandling it, sometimes maliciously, sometimes good intentioned people have mishandled it. But we can't just say, oh, well, I meant well. We have to look at our institutions and say, do we have the policies in place? Do we have the accountability structures in place? And what have we done wrong? How can we support these victims at the convention level? That's what this is about. This is not you know, the SBC's equivalent FBI force isn't going to show up at your church and start digging through your deacons meeting minutes. This has nothing to do with any of that. That's a false narrative. It's that our institutions at the highest level have mishandled it. And that's what we've got to figure out. Well, that is a great place to wrap up the first part of what is a two-part conversation with our guests about recapping the SBC 2021 and the response to sexual abuse within the SBC. So the next episode, next part of this is going to drop tomorrow. So it's going to come out tomorrow. Make sure to check it out. The full length video is already up on our YouTube Facebook page, but the audio version, episode 50, will come out tomorrow. So make sure to check it out. It'll be waiting on you wherever you get your podcast. If you don't subscribe to the podcast, hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, it challenged you, made you think. Um, you've been listening for a while. You've never left a review. Take a couple seconds, leave a review. We'll be back tomorrow with part two of our conversation. <laughs>